final vision. And this happens in chapter 11 and 12. Now last week, we saw that the prelude to Daniel's vision was this appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. He was also ministered to by an angel. And we got a glimpse, a very rare glimpse, into the spiritual warfare that goes on around us. We saw that the prayers of the saints have effects both in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. And I really hope that the point of last week was that you are encouraged to pray more. The insanity and, frankly, the depravity that we see in our country is a spiritual battle that we need to fight in prayer. In my lifetime, uh, this country has never needed prayer more than it does right now. This uh, chapter 11, verses 2 through 20, sets the stage for this very prominent Antichrist who was named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We've already seen him as the little horn in Daniel 8. Now, Antiochus IV is very important because of the role that he would play in the persecution of the Jewish people. Now, the first part of chapter 11 is really the, uh, sets the stage, is the build-up to the arrival of this guy named Antiochus IV, how his rule came to be. These verses cover the rise of Greece and Alexander the Great, but then as we have seen in this prophecy and as we can see in history, when Alexander the Great and his kingdom was at the height of its power, he died, and after some infighting, there were that kingdom was divided into four different kingdoms that didn't have near the power or influence that the united Greece had. The two major strongest divisions were the Ptolemaic Empire of the south and the Seleucid Empire to the north. Judah was caught in the middle of that power struggle. All the details of this section of of verses 2 through 20 were future to Daniel but they are history to us. Now, if you're studying world history, you're going to spend a whole lot more time on Alexander the Great than you are on Antiochus IV. You might not even hear him mentioned. But to God and to Daniel, Antiochus IV was a very important guy because he was a forerunner and a precursor of the final Antichrist. So this first section of the prophecy culminates in the rise of Antiochus to the Seleucid throne and his subsequent persecution of the Jews. Now normally when I preach, I take a verse and I go verse by verse and I explain what they mean. We're going to summarize for the first uh, verses 2 through 20 because although it was prophecy to Daniel, I think it would come off as sort of boring history to you. (laughs) Because if I were telling you all the names and dates of how these things were fulfilled, I'm not sure that uh, that would bless you in any way, and I'm not sure that that would be helpful. So to summarize, these uh, events that are prophesied in this section is how... Alexander the Great's kingdom fell apart, was divided into four, how there was a power struggle between the north and the south, the Seleucid and the Ptolemy empires, and how that eventually Antiochus IV became influential and had power over Judah and Israel because he came to that Seleucid throne. Starting in verse 21, though, we're going to see this prototype Antichrist, Antiochus IV. So we'll slow down and look a little more carefully. Starting in Daniel eleven twenty one, it says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person, 
to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Now, historically, we can see that Antiochus IV was the brother of uh, Seleucus IV, who was, who was the king. So he was not the heir. Uh, actually, his nephew was the heir. But as we see there, um, through flatteries and through uh, trickery, he, he obtained the kingdom even though that he was not the rightful heir. Daniel 11.22 says, Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Now, who is this prince of the covenant? It may have been Demetrius, that nephew that was in line to have the throne, uh, or this may refer to the high priest, because the high priest um, that, that met up with Antiochus was not faithful to him and was in rebellion to him and was saying, no, you're not going to take away our, our worship. And so he had him killed and replaced. So I'm not sure who this um, prince of the covenant is, but it may either have been the rightful heir or the Jewish high priest. But that high priest was murdered and a more accommodating priest was put in his place. Now, verse 23, And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. So alliances and treaties with liars are not worth the paper they are written on. It's not wise to remain in a treaty where only one person is obeying the laws of the treaty, right? I think we have finally figured that out in this country, but it took a long time. And we see in verse 24 that Antiochus was buying loyalty by what the Bible says here was scattering plunder, spoil, and goods to those who were faithful to him and who would follow him. Verse 25, And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. So Antiochus led several successful campaigns against Egypt. Verse 27 tells us that these Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings came together to make an agreement, but they both were intending evil and speaking lies. So uh, the, the outcome of that was nothing profitable. Things happen on God's timetable and nobody else's. So they were supposed to be at war. Our sovereign God had them fighting over Israel, and they could come together and try to make peace, but it was not meant to be. Verse 28 says, And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So after plundering Egypt in 169 B.C., Antiochus returned to find a Jewish insurrection in progress. The Jews had heard that Antiochus had been killed during that Egyptian campaign. He had not. And so they started to rebel. And so when he got back, he put down that rebellion. According to Second Maccabees, he killed 80,000 men, women, and children. And he looted the temple with the help of that high priest, that evil high priest that he had set in power. 
verse 29 through 35, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. So he had done all these successful campaigns down into Egypt and had been victorious and had plundered Egypt and things were going well. So he said, that's a good idea. I'm going to do it again. But this time it did not end up well for him. Verse 30, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join them, join to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Now, to explain what was happening there, I'm going to read you a little passage from a a wonderful little commentary called Exalting Jesus in Daniel. We now arrive at the main point of the purpose of the verses of 21 through 35. It is without question and in, in many ways at the appointed time as the God of history orchestrates his plan for his people. Antiochus once again launches a campaign against Egypt, which is the south. These, it's the south of Jerusalem. It's the south of Israel. And uh, this Antiochus was up to the north. But this time things are different. This time will not be like the first. Antiochus encountered opposition from the ships of Kittim, or Cyprus, a Roman fleet that had come from Alexandria at the request of the Ptolemies. So the Ptolemies were down south, and they were tired of getting whooped on by the guys in the north, so they called the Romans, who were going to be the next. You know, we studied that statue, and we studied those different beasts, and we see that after Greece, the big world power was going to be Rome. So they were the up-and-coming power. So these guys in the south said, Rome, come help us from this guy attacking us. Antiochus encountered opposition from these Romans and this Roman fleet uh, at the request of the Ptolemies. The Roman commander Gaius Papilius, somebody, met Antiochus and handed him a letter from the Roman Senate ordering him to either leave Egypt or deal with Rome. The Roman commander famously drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and told him that he must give an answer before stepping out of the circle. Now that is humiliating right there. This guy who was this powerful prototype of the Antichrist had been dominating the, the, uh, the Egyptians. And now this Roman came and drew a circle in the sand around him and said, you are ordered to leave here and not come back or we'll kill you and throw you out. What are you going to do? And so he was humiliated by this and he went home and really took out his anger and frustration on the Jewish people. He sent Apollonius in Second Maccabees that tells us the head of his mercenaries and the chief collector of tribute to Jerusalem. And this guy pretended to come in peace, but on the Sabbath day he suddenly attacked the Jews, massacring many of the people and plundering the city. But he rewarded the apostate Jews. He rewarded the Jews that turned against their own people for profit and for gain. 
and he, uh, he was using that high priest that he set in place. Jewish religious practices such as circumcision, possessing the scripture, offering sacrifices, and observing feast days were forbidden on penalty of death, and the imperial cult was introduced. Desecration of the Jewish religion reached a crescendo on December 15, 167, when an altar or idol statue devoted to Zeus was erected in the temple in Jerusalem. On December 25th, sacrifices, including swine, were made in the temple and offered on God's holy altar. The temple was desecrated, and the abomination of desolation that was spoken of was carried out. Now, Jesus, later on, says there's going to be an abomination of desecration. So, this is one of those things in prophecy that we see fulfilled in one way here, and then fulfilled again in the future. In verses 32 through 35, we see that there will be those who stand strong and remain faithful. When Antiochus came in there, he was giving gifts away, and he was giving this plunder that he got in Egypt. And he said, look, if you'll turn on your own people, I will reward you. But there were Jews who were faithful to God and remained faithful and suffered for it. Now, the chief among these who were faithful was this family later known as the Maccabees, They won some amazing military victories, and eventually they rededicated the temple on December 14th of 164 B.C. Now, the celebration of this event is still observed by the Jews today, and this is Hanukkah. So if you've ever wondered, what is this celebration of Hanukkah? It is the victory that the Maccabees had over this Antichrist, Antiochus IV, and his forces, and the rededication of the temple. I was talking to Catherine about this yesterday, and she said, well, that's all really cool. Why don't we celebrate Hanukkah? I said, well, I don't know. You can, you can celebrate, I guess, this year. Um, so let's look at some applications of these things. I tried to run through some facts so that you'd know what was going on and know how this history to us was prophecy to him and was fulfilled to the letter. But now what can we learn from it and apply? Well, one thing is the kingdoms of this world are unstable and will pass away. Now, I know that you know that in your head. I hope that you know that in your heart. We've seen this throughout the book of Daniel. And we in America are seeing the richest and most powerful nation in the history of the world unraveling around us. Now, I certainly hope that this unraveling is not immediate, and I hope it's not complete, but we see it happening. Now, I'm preaching to myself here, uh, big time, because I have been sick at heart and genuinely distressed by what I see going on in our country. And I think anybody that loves America would be sick at heart. But I need to get my focus off of this kingdom, a little bit at least, and mainly on the kingdom that is to come. Because I've got a job to do. Uh, I, I am supposed to get the gospel to people and disciple people in the kingdom of Christ. And I can't do that if I'm focused on this world. And so I've got to watch a little less news. (laughs) I've got to worry a little bit less, pray a little bit more, and then make sure that I am about doing my job, which is working for the permanent kingdom of Christ. Now, uh, the other day I saw this Facebook genius uh, who was commenting. And what they said was, If you are one of those people who say that Christ is the answer to the problems going on in America, 
you're really avoiding the problem and just saying a platitude. Instead of uh, working for social justice, you're just full of platitudes. And I thought, obviously this person has never actually been about the very difficult work of evangelism and discipleship, or they would understand that that is not a passive activity at all. You know, this Black Lives Matter stuff has become a false religion for some people. It is taking over their life. All right, speaking of which, do Black Lives Matter? Obviously, they do. (laughs) We in the pro-life community have known this for a long time, right? Now, that's why I get sickened by the hypocrisy of people going into the rotunda at the Capitol and kneeling to proclaim that black lives matter, while at the same time doing everything in their power to make sure that Thousands and hundreds of thousands of black lives are snuffed out in the womb every year. That is disgusting hypocrisy, right? So, if you asked me, do black lives matter? I would say, of course. I might look at you a little weird like you had said to me, is the sun real? I mean, obviously. (laughs) Uh, How do I know? I know because the Bible tells me that every single human being is created in the image of God. And therefore has worth and value. And you know what else I know? My Lord and Savior and Master died for black people. And white people. And every other shade of people. Right? So of course that matters. Now, will I have anything to do with or support the slogan of a political movement that aims to defund the police and destroy the country? No, I will not. I don't think the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention should either, to tell you the truth. Way too much of our society, and and I hate this, I hate to say this, but way too much of the Southern Baptist Convention has, has embraced some Marxism, where they think there are two kinds of people in the world. And I think there are two kinds of people in the world too, the saved and the lost. (laughs) But the two kinds of people in a Marxist ideology are the oppressors, and the oppressed. Now the problem with that is, if you are in the oppressor class, it doesn't have anything to do with personal action or personal behavior. You are simply guilty because of what you are. And if you are in the oppressed category, it has nothing to do with personal responsibility. You are innocent and victimized simply because of who you are. That is anti-biblical, right? And to the extent that the Southern Baptist Convention starts agreeing with that, we need to speak up. Uh, they, they voted a couple of years ago to study uh, you know, intersectionality and some of these nonsensical philosophies uh, just to get a better point of view or whatever. Uh, you're not going to tell me you're going to study Marxism just to be enlightened. That doesn't make sense to me. So I hope and I pray that some of this trend will, will go back the other way. And I hope that you'll pray that with me as well. If you're like me, you need to hear this. Um, You need to get your eyes more on God's kingdom and less on the worldly one. And I am confessing that I do too. Now that does not mean disengage at all. Speak up, speak out, vote when we're given the opportunity to vote. But remember, we are pilgrims here on our way to the city of God. Let me reiterate that we should make reforms and improvements as we go. Uh, Winston Churchill was a 
brilliant man, but he was also a very funny man. And he said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried. (laughs) All right, so until we find something more perfect, which we sang about today, that eternal kingdom of God, when Christ reigns and rules in absolute justice, that'll be the perfect form of government. Until then, we've got to go with the best one possible. Seek and save the lost. That is what's going to matter in eternity. All right, our next point is that Satan gains a foothold among God's people when some in the midst of God's people cooperate with him. Let me remind you about verses 30 through 32. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We cannot give the enemy a foothold in our church. We can't do that by being doctrinally weak or unsound. We must know what we believe and why we believe it. We cannot give the enemy a foothold by moral failure and compromise. We cannot give the enemy a foothold spiritually by a lack of prayer and a lack of reading and studying the Bible. Uh, I, I hope, and obeying it, by the way, we don't just read it, and under, read it and try to understand it. We read it in order to obey it, right? So let me encourage you again, and I know I do this all the time. But please, not only be a people of prayer, be a people who read the scripture. Now, if you say, man, I couldn't have understood this passage. Well, I understand there are parts of the Bible that are very difficult. The book of Daniel is a prime example. But, as Dr. Rogers used to say, read it and obey it. And the more you read and the more you obey, the more you'll understand what you didn't understand. All right? So the more we read, the more we study, the more we pray with God, the more we'll understand the word. And again, we don't want to have that one-sided conversation with God, right? Where we just come to him and we give him a laundry list of things that we want. We want to hear from God. And the way you hear from God is through his word. You know, one time Charles Stanley said, hey, do you want to hear God audibly speak? If you do, read the Bible out loud. (laughs) He was right. If you want to hear God's audible voice, read the Bible out loud. We have to be ready to defend the church. The Bible says the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The job of the shepherd is to feed and lead and protect the sheep, but when a wolf comes and gets after the sheep, we need to kill that wolf, right? Now, I'm not talking about killing people, but if, and, and really to be realistic, when dissension false doctrine, and that slow, deadly poison of apathy start creeping into the church. We need to do everything we can to kill it. If a wolf comes in and gets after the sheep, we need to realize it, recognize it, and kill it. 
All right, the next thing I want us to see is I want us to be encouraged by the fact that Satan will not be allowed to finally and fully overcome God's people. This has been the goal of every Antichrist that has ever come. Antiochus wanted to destroy the worship of God. Uh, Hitler certainly wanted to exterminate the Jews and destroy the worship of, of their God. This end times Antichrist that we'll see will indeed have the same goal, but they will all fail. So be encouraged by the fact that Satan will not be allowed to destroy the church. These Jews went through a terrible time of persecution and hardship, but they were rescued and they were preserved. Now, individually, we may not be rescued and preserved in this life. We know there are martyrs who die for their faith. And even individual churches won't, aren't guaranteed to survive. You know, when we were talking about some different changes in our church, I would fairly often hear somebody say, we've been here since 1903, so there's no way we're going to die. Well, if you had been born in 1903, it'd be pretty likely that you'd be ready to die now, right? <laughs> God doesn't promise to keep any local church healthy and, and thriving. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, he promises to remove them if they represent him poorly, right? So we need to realize that it's not that he will preserve a local church, but that the church in the world will persevere until the coming of Christ. He will protect his church and cause it to go forward. Now we can be part of that winning team though. <laughs> we can be part of that victorious people. The next thing I want us to see is that God sometimes uses trials to refine his people. Daniel 11, starting in verse 35, or, or just verse 35, it says, And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And then in Romans 8, 28, we get this wonderful assurance. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Is every individual thing that happens good? Well, no, not necessarily. But God in his sovereignty can work everything together for good. For your good and for his glory. And then in Romans eight thirty eight through 39, which is just 10 verses later, after he says all things work together for good, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that should give us uh, strength, should give us courage, should give us hope. When a lot of things around us look like they're burning down, we know that God will preserve his church. Now there's a scene change here between verse 35 and verse 36. Up to this point, we see things that are clearly and specifically fulfilled by Antiochus IV. Now we'll shift to his later counterpart, which is the end times Antichrist. Are there obvious markers in the text of a scene change? No, there aren't. I wish I could tell you, oh, well, in the Hebrew, we see that there's a scene change because of this or this. Uh, there is not an obvious change. Prophecy often does not show the time between future events. You know, the Jews who were eagerly awaiting the Messiah did not expect a first and second coming, right? 
they expected Messiah and that he would take care of business <laughs> and everything would be done when Messiah returned. They couldn't see the gap between his first coming and his second coming. And that is a characteristic of biblical prophecy. If you were to look into the far distance at two mountain peaks. Now, we've got to imagine that in Mississippi. But imagine we were looking into the far distance and we could see these two mountain peaks. They might look like they're right together. But in reality, as we approached them, we might find that there's a valley in between of them of miles and miles that we couldn't see. And that is the perspective of some of these Old Testament prophets. They could see the high points, but they couldn't necessarily see that they were separated by time. The Antichrist, we see, will deify himself. In verses 36 and 37, it says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. All right, uh, that, that's kind of weird, that one beloved of women thing. And it's very difficult to translate. And if you look in different translations, you'll see some pretty different ideas spread out there. So I'm going to throw out some speculation that I found interesting and you, you know, take it for what it's worth. Some commentators see verse 37 as hinting as a possible ethnic Jewish heritage for the Antichrist. Um, that makes sense to me. Now we know he's not going to come from Jews. He's going to come from, uh, you know, eventually a, a Romanesque empire or a descendant of the Roman empire. But might he be ethnically Jewish, they bring up. Well, if he is going to, you know, pretend to be the Messiah then that would certainly make sense because there couldn't be a Roman Messiah, right? Now, I don't know if any of this is correct, but the one beloved by women may refer to the Messiah as the hope of Jewish women. The Jewish women hoped to be the mother of the Messiah. And so that may be what that's talking about, but I don't know. I found it to be interesting speculation. In verse 38, it says, He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. So this Antichrist's core belief and mode of operation is going to be that might makes right. He is going to conquer and he is going to do what he wants to do. He will dominate and subdue through military power. Then in verse 39, it says, He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. He will be empowered and controlled by Satan. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries, and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into a glorious land, into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train." But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him.
Now this end times Antichrist is going to win many military victories. Verse 41 tells us that tens of thousands in the glorious land, and of course the glorious land there speaks of the land of Israel, will be killed. Verse 45 tells us that he will set up his camp and his headquarters in Israel. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Isn't that kind of anticlimactic there? Now what about this nail-biting ending where he and Jesus fight to the death at the Battle of Armageddon? (laughs) Well, it's not going to be much of a fight. Uh, It won't go ten rounds. It won't even go one round. When he comes up, and this is a guy who has won all these military victories. He is powerful. He is influential. He is conquering the whole world. And yet, when he faces our king, he won't even be able to put up a fight. When they were filming Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, I have heard this story that there was this guy who came out with a sword and he was going to fight with Indiana Jones, right? And Indiana Jones has this whip and the guy has the sword and it's this big build up to this epic scene. And uh, the way I heard it, Harrison Ford was kind of tired. He'd been shooting all day. So he took out his gun and shot the guy. And they thought that was so funny that they put it in the movie, right? So big, big climactic thing where there's going to be this huge battle and, oh, it's over. Well, that's going to be the same with the Antichrist. There's not going to be even a fight. Ultimate victory belongs to Jesus. Let me ask you, do you belong to Jesus? Let me tell you how you can. So this one that we've been studying... This vision last week that we saw of the pre-incarnate Christ in all his glory and his majesty. This one who, when he appeared to Daniel, Daniel was stricken to the point that he fell on his face asleep. He couldn't handle this vision. We saw the beloved apostle John, who had spent years and years with Jesus, had reclined on him at dinner. When he saw Jesus in all his majesty and glory, he fell at his feet as if dead. This same one who is going to come and destroy the Antichrist as easily as you and I could blow out a match. He came to this earth born as a little baby in the humblest of circumstances. And he lived a life of perfection that you couldn't live. And then he died a death that you and I deserved. In our place. So that not only could we be forgiven. But we could be granted his righteousness. That's the most amazing part of this thing. Not only are we free from guilt. We are given the righteousness of Christ. 